Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. I'm going to be teaching from that Romans passage that Ashley read, so I'm not going to read it, read it again. Instead, I'm going to talk about the coronavirus. That seems like a fun thing to do at church. Uh, so I just want to say this. Um, we, we know that, that this is something that's probably at the very top of your uh, news feed on your phone and, and your computer. And I think there are real reasons for uh, the world to, to stop and take note and, and even to be concerned. Um, and I think the reason why we, we should care about something like the coronavirus is that it seems to be um, affecting our, our most vulnerable members of society, um, people who uh, have some sense of physical compromise in their body, aged, aged men and women, uh, people who, who are unwell uh, to start with. For the bulk of our population, the, the coronavirus, if you got it, would be um, like a cold or a flu or something in that category, and yet... Uh, it's a, a highly contagious deal. So I just want to say this. We're paying attention to it as a church. And um, two things really at the top of the list, like wash your hands and don't panic, uh, I think would be just good rules of thumb for us. Uh, if, if it becomes necessary in the sense that, that Corona comes to Atlanta, I just want you to know we'll be using uh, our our best common sense and our connection with uh, epidemiologists and friends at the CDC to help us be wise um, about how we're going to do church life together. But we're not in a space right now to where we're modifying our rhythms of gathering together. I think that one of the gifts of the church is that Christians in times of uncertainty and, and even crisis uh, pull together and serve the world rather than just simply being people who are given to self-preservation. And yet we won't be dumb about that. So I, I would ask that you would... Um, Live as a responsible human being, uh, which means that I think we have to resist the uh, impulse that the uh, the media throws our way to cause us to just panic about all kinds of things. And so it's like, be aware, but but let's fight and check fear and and panic in our in our souls. And I think that's probably a really healthy response on the early end to stuff like this. Um, and we'll be using social media and. Uh, and our, our various platforms of communication should we need to communicate things about our gathered life together. But um, I don't think we're, we're at that place just yet. So um, God help us to, to sit steady in the boat and uh, just to be faithful as we walk forward. I want to pray. Um, and then we're just going to jump into to this sermon and, and really sit with these words from our brother Paul. Father, I ask you today to give us wisdom to... Uh, think about um, a passage of, of the Bible that is uh, highly theological and, frankly, uh, probably a, a little bit elusive. Uh, these big kind of metaphorical ideas um, are hard sometimes for us to wrap our hearts and our heads around. And so today I pray that you would give us the clarity to think about this passage in a manner that is consistent with uh, how we would live our lives, especially as we walk through land. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to say just a few things to us today about this passage. But first, I, I, I think the first thing to, to note is, is just to say a little bit more about the season of Lent. If, if you are anything like me, uh, you maybe didn't grow up in a, in a church tradition where Lent was observed. I had no idea what, what Lent was all about. Uh, and so the first thing that I'm going to talk about today is, is that season. You, you just need to know whether you're a cradle kind of liturgist or not, that Lent is, as Ashley said, a, a period of preparation. It's a, a period of uh, in 
intentional wilderness wandering. And, and there's a lot of uh, data in the Bible that would suggest that wilderness wandering is uh, good for us. It's how we come home. Uh, the Jews did it, looking for home, leaving Egypt and, and heading into Israel. Moses entered into a wilderness place when he received the law of God. And Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, entered into the wilderness. And so what Christians do all over the world is we pull our belts in and we choose, volitionally choose, to enter into a kind of wilderness wandering period to prepare our hearts for Easter. If you don't want Easter to sneak up on you, if you don't want Easter to feel hollow, uh, like one of those chocolate um, things you eat on Easter morning, a, a bunny with no insides, then Lent is the way you make yourself ready. And I think that a lot of us, if we're honest, holidays like Christmas and Easter seem like they should feel more to us than they actually do when we get to the day. And I believe that one of the reasons for that is that we don't do enough work to get ready for those things. And so they sneak up on us inevitably. Lent is an opportunity for you and me, people who live in a land of relative plenty, abundance, to actually say, what would it look like for me to follow Jesus uh, to follow the Jews, to follow the church into a wilderness place um, of my own volition. Jesus entered the wilderness as a responsible son of man. He was not uh, driven in a, in a compelling or a mindless sort of way into the wilderness. He went there with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that you and me, that we can go into seasons where we say no to some of the abundance. If you are always, always feasting, that is gluttony. And what fasting does is it actually tempers our feasting and reminds us that we don't just live on all the really awesome things that we have access to, but that we live uh, by God's grace and his gift. And so Lent, for many of us, is going to be an opportunity to remember um, whose we are and where we come from and to say no to some of the things around us, not because they're bad, but because we want to say yes to something even better. And that's actually connected to a lot of what we're going to talk about today in this sermon. So the next and really the first movement in our text today is um, the way that I've chosen to break this down is sort of two doors and two kingdoms. And then we're going to unpack those two doors and those two kingdoms because that's the nature of what Paul's talking about here. Um, first, two doors, one opened by Adam, one opened by Jesus. That That's the sort of general feel of what Paul is trying to say. Um, Adam opened a door to pain and loss. Now, a lot of us in this room immediately, when we hear stories about Adam and Eve, we stop and say, time out. Like, do I have to believe that there was a guy named Adam and a gal named Eve? Um, and, and if you feel like you have a hard time believing that those people were like actual people, then a lot of us think, well, what does the Bible even have to say to me? Here's what I want to say to you about this. Paul's purpose, and frankly, the purpose of the book of Genesis, was not to give us a scientific, detailed rendering of the world. It was to tell us a story about God and about people. So what that means is that Christians believe all kinds of things about Genesis and all kinds of things about what Paul would be saying here. I believe that the most important thing for you to believe, a thing that unites Christians across all kinds of spectrums is this. God is telling a powerfully, fundamentally, deeply, and profoundly true story about the way the world works. And one of the things that Paul is highlighting here is that people, Adam, man, mankind, that people early, early, early in the story began to miss the mark, began to turn away from that which was their ideal, 
scenario that God had created, which was unbroken, unhindered friendship with him. And that when we moved away from that, destruction, death, and loss began to enter into our story. And what Christians and Jews alike have believed since the very beginning is that that miss, that pain entered the story very early on. We didn't get it right for long. And what Paul is saying here is that when that miss, when that turning away happened, that this has actually opened the door to all kinds of hurt. God is love. That's what the Bible tells us. Not like love, not full of love, not a capable of love. The Bible tells us that God is love and love is inherently generative. Love inherently um, creates new life, new things. We see this on a biological level. We also feel it when someone is passionately connected to an idea or an ideal. New life seems to emerge from that passionate connection. And what the Bible tells us is that God is love and that out of that love, like life began to issue forth from him. But love requires volition. The way that God made the world, and we talk about this all the time because it's one of the big objections. People are like, well, if God didn't want bad things to happen in the world, then why did he give people freedom to choose good or bad? And it's because of this love that like exists at the very core of God's being. Because if God made you and me to be robots, if he made us to be mindless automatons who would always, always, always do the right thing, that would not be a response of love to God. And you know this, if you've loved it so much as a cat... Forget people on an epic and very intimate level, but even pets, it's like you're, you open yourself up to love. You might be rejected and the pain of rejection is so powerfully real, but so is the choice of love. And I believe and Christians believe that since the very beginning of the story, that because the very nature of God is love, he created a scenario where people might not choose to love him. And what the Christian story tells us, the Jewish story too for that matter, is that very early on, humans turned away from an open, loving relationship with God and they turned towards something else. They actually looked elsewhere to have their needs met. And if you go all the way back, the story says that there was this beautiful tree that existed beside the most beautiful tree. And it was easy on the eyes and it looked like it would satisfy desire. And people thought, this is elusive, this God thing. So I'm going to turn to something concrete and tangible that will satisfy my desire. And I would submit to you that we've been doing that in terms of our tendency ever since. That's why I believe that Genesis, regardless of how you would interpret the details of Genesis, Genesis is fundamentally, profoundly true. The, the truth of that desire, that instinctual desire to turn away towards something more concrete towards something that would satisfy my desire. I feel that temptation in my bones. It, it, it animates humans in ways that cause tons of conflict inside of us. And what Paul is painting here in this story is that because God is a God who is love, he created a scenario where he longed for people like you and me to choose him, which means that we might not choose him. And the story goes... Like you know it goes. People went down a road. And when humans looked away from God for satisfaction. For the meeting of a desire. A door opened. A different kind of life emerged. A, a pathway that led away from God. Not toward him. And death came in through that door. 
And by death, I don't just mean like daytime turns to nighttime or leaves fall off trees. By death, I mean that loss of innocence, that feeling that we have when we know things aren't right, when we know something threatening is coming toward us and we're not sure how to respond and how to be. Death is what happens when things are not as they ought to be. Um, death results from sin in that sense, from a missing, an opening of a door that led us in a direction that nobody wants to go down, that nobody likes what's coming. And yet the stuff that comes through that door just keeps coming. It's like a relentless force. It's like once the cat's out of the bag, we can't get the cat back into the bag and we feel it in our bones. People get sick. It's not just about personal choices. I don't think Paul's talking about what you're choosing on a Friday night only here or even primarily. I believe that what Paul is talking about in this passage when it comes to sin is this vague thing that comes through a door. It's like a a fear. It's like the coronavirus. It's like this thing that we can't quite wrap our heads around that really bothers us and worries us and creates instability. And the thing about it is that when we looked elsewhere, the story says... For satisfaction and a door to death and destruction open, it's very, very difficult, seemingly impossible to close that door. And after a while, we know what to expect. Things just go from bad to worse. The world is oriented toward pain and violence. People hurt people. Power is corrupted. We disappoint ourselves. We aim for goodness, but we miss. The world seems to be moving toward chaos, threatening to bring us down with it. And some of us in this room today are in that place and we're exhausted because we just don't love what's coming through that door. A door that was open, not necessarily by you alone, but a door open by mankind where we chose something that was not the thing that we should have chosen. But Paul says that not only does a door get open that opens to pain and loss, but that Jesus opens a door to hope and life. Jesus is not in this passage just some sort of counterbalance to Adam. Here Paul states that Jesus has taken the weight of the entire catastrophe upon himself. That in a way that's hard for us to wrap our heads around, Jesus has actually taken on the pain of that first door. And he's done something about it. And not only is he closing that door and one day will it be closed forever, but he's opening a different kind of door. Adam opens a door to pain and death. Jesus opens a door to a new kind of way of living. He initiates, the Bible tells us, the New Testament tells us, a new way to live, a new way to be. He's starting something new, Paul says. Jesus opening up this new possibility to live differently from the culture of what's coming through that other door. And I think that leads us to think not just about doors, but about kingdoms. And so the next kind of macro thing I want you to sit with, and I know this is hard. This is not the way we normally preach because we don't normally preach in Romans. Paul writes like, you know, 200 word sentences in this book. There's a lot of thinking going on in Romans. So we're asking you to kind of like elevate your brain to some more abstract thinking. Paul would say those two doors lead to two kingdoms, to two very different kinds of places. And that's tricky for us because the word kingdom is not a word we use. Thanks be to God, we don't have a king. If we did, we'd be in for a real interesting next year. What does a king, choosing a king look like? It's like we know that whoever it is we put in that house is, you know, only going to be there for a bit. Kings are different. Queens are different. 
And so Paul uses this word that I think helps us understand the idea of like a culture, a place with norms and rules and expectations. And I believe that Paul's painting a picture here of two very different kinds of places. That first door opened itself up to a place. And the second one also opens itself up to a very, very different kind of place. Both places are predictable. Both places have norms. Both places have rules. Both places have a culture. And the first one is a kingdom marked by death. This is the door that mankind opened. And it's predictable. This is the one you know. This is the kingdom that you feel in your bones because it was what was behind the human failure that has perpetuated itself throughout history. And we feel it. We were born into it like Jews that were born into Egyptian slavery in the second generation or Babylonian slavery or Jews that were born into the ghettos of Berlin. It was all they ever knew. And it hurt and it robbed them of their dignity and their hope. But it was all they ever knew. It was the kingdom that they breathed since the day that they were born. And I want you to think about that. I want you to think about a refugee born in a place that does not welcome them, does not love them, does not like them. And they're ultimately not from there, but it's all they ever knew. I would submit to you that that is your experience and mine with this kingdom. It is all you know, and yet it is not where you come from. And this is why Jews would... Light candles. And they would sing the songs of home. And they would teach the mother language to their kids. In a land that did not allow it and permit it. Because they had to remember where they came from. And for you and me it's more elusive. Because the thing we think we know. The thing that we think is home. The thing that we think is normal. Is not full of life. It's full of something else. This is what's at work when we injure one another. This is what's at work when we say things and do things that we ought not to say. This is what's at work when we get sick. This is what's at work when power is corrupted. This is what's at work when we're maligned or we see people be scapegoated. This is what's at work when we act out of self-preservation, even though we don't want to. This is what's at work when relationships move this way rather than this way. It's a kingdom and it's sadistically predictable. This is what's at work when you don't want us to come to addiction, but you do. This is what's at work when you say, I won't lie, I won't cheat, I won't steal, and then you do. It's like an atmospheric connection. It's powerful, and it's sadistic, and it's broken, and it exhausts us. And many of us have been living in this state of exhaustion, saying, Where do I go? How do I navigate what's happening all around me? How do I navigate what's happening inside me? Because we begin to think, maybe I'm from Egypt. Maybe Babylon is my home. Maybe that ghetto is where I come from and where I belong. See, the challenge in all those scenarios for the Jews... And this is why I'm so thankful that Christianity has a Jewish root system because the Jews have something to teach us about pain. They have something to teach us about suffering because in all of those scenarios, Egypt and Babylon and the buildup to the um, second great world war were places where our Jewish family were deeply persecuted, were marginalized, were put into a place of deep darkness and told to believe that it was their home and told to believe that it was where they belonged. 
And there are equivalents for you today. Places where you've been told this is the way the world works. This is the way jobs work. This is the way promotion works. This is the way we treat ourselves. This is the way we treat other people. And it may suck a little bit, but it's just the way it goes. And there's something in us that wants to rebel against it. But the status quo is really powerful, y'all. The status quo has a way of getting people in line. And one of the great gifts of Lent is this is your opportunity to stand up and get out of line. This is our opportunity to be subversive, to say no. So if one door opened to a kingdom marked by sin and death, there is another door marked by a kingdom that's described in terms of grace and righteousness. See, what Jesus did was he opened a rival. He opened a threat to the normal status quo of that kingdom I just described. That kingdom that you grew up in. That kingdom that we feel in our bones. That kingdom that feels inevitably like it's going to win. And mind you, the door that Jesus opens does not mean that we don't feel the harsh nature of the other kingdom. We feel it in the same way the Jews felt it. We feel it in the same way that refugees feel it where they're holding on to something that's true about them in the midst of a wider conversation that is not true to them, does not owe them, is harsh. And I believe that in some ways we are being invited as Christians to remember whose we are and where we come from, to lay hold of our own stories. And this means that there will be times where you will walk out of step with the wider culture around you. I have aligned my life to the rival kingdom And that means I feel weird sometimes. It means that I won't do things that other people will do. Or I feel a a sense of conviction when I succumb to that other world, that other ethos, that other culture. And one of the things that I think Paul is doing so brilliantly is he's saying to us, you're not from around here. Remember where you came from, even if you feel like you were born in exile. This is why I think spiritual practices are so important. This is why I think gathering together in church is so important because we gather, we we pray, we read, we quiet our hearts, we engage in spiritual disciplines, both corporate and individual, because we need to remember where we came from. Like people clustered in foreign lands who hold on to the culture of their place, their home, we have to do the same thing. Listen to what Paul says in verse 17. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Pay attention to these words. We're going to break them down because I want you to hear what St. Paul is saying. More importantly, I think we need to hear what God is saying through our brother Paul. Number one, how much more? He says, how much more? It's not just a reversal of death and destruction. What Paul is saying, what God is saying is that there's something more. There's something abundant. And we see darkness. We see pain. We see uh, betrayal. We see discouragement coming at us. It's the way the other kingdom works. And yet Paul is saying something here. If we'll grab it, that there's something abundant that can come from the heart of God in the midst of darkness. That we're not meant just to scrape by. We're not meant just to hold on for some afterlife and never experience the presence and power of God here. God is saying through our brother Paul, there's something abundant available to you even in the shadowlands. And then he says, 
How much more will those who receive? And this reminds me that my reception of the good thing that God has is like me walking of my own engagement, my own volitional choice to the door that is Jesus opening it and entering into it. This is not passive in the way that death is passive. See, the irony is that door is wide open and it's almost like what's coming through it is so powerful we can't even close it. So the stuff that comes through the other kingdom's door, we don't have to choose it. It's just bombarding us. This door, we have to receive it. We have to engage it. And this is why God, I believe, asks us to be the kinds of people who live our lives on purpose, with intention, engaging our volition to say yes to God, which means a no to this other thing. There's a part you have to play, a taking hold, an apprehending, and it's not passive. He says, how much more will those who receive, receive abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness? When we step into doors that are countercultural to us, that are far into our experience and yet intrinsically home for us. When we go to our homeland, we receive grace and righteousness. Grace is the winsome gift of God that enables you to be who God's called you to be in the midst of the shadow land, in the midst of Babylon, in the midst of Egypt, in the midst of the ghettos. Grace says, I live in that ghetto, but I do not belong in that ghetto. And do you understand that's what the Germans did? They clustered Jewish people, Polish people into these things they called ghettos. And they said, we're going to force you here so that you will forget who you are. And then we'll control you more powerfully. And the grace of God in that place which you live, I live in some analogy of a, a force that pushes us into places where we forget who we are. The grace of God says, I am not my surroundings. I am something more than my surroundings. I am not the worst thing I've ever done. I am something more than that because God says so. The grace of God is the winsome nature of God that says you're from somewhere else. And righteousness means we don't have to hide we're not defined by failure. We're defined by something God has done for us that puts us at rest and makes things right that aren't right. And Paul here is, I think, painting a picture of what we're meant to hope for receiving. And then he finishes this by saying, how much more will they receive abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? He has given you, if you're a Christian, a place to stand. He has given you a way in the midst of the darkness to remain safe and secure despite the fact that the other kingdom continues to do its thing. Y'all, this is not a happily ever after pie in the sky story. This is a story where we're meant to lay hold of something deeply countercultural. And there's no time like Lent to hold on to something countercultural. Something that pushes us outside of our comfort zone, even outside of our experiences. You've been given a place to stand. That's what Paul is saying. But we know it's not all finished. And this is where we'll end. I believe that during this season, and frankly always, we are invited to embrace the tension of the now and the not yet. If you read the New Testament, there are times where Jesus says, um, the kingdom of God is here. And then there are times where he says the kingdom of God is coming. So is it here or is it coming? Yes. The now and the not yet 
is how we live our lives. My son and I are finishing Band of Brothers again, which I still maintain is the best thing ever put on television. Um, I don't care whether you're a pacifist or not. Like, it is so good. And it's a story that needs to be told. It's so good. And one of the things I love about the end of that story is that when victory was assured, people were still getting shot at. Like the Germans, it was, it was essentially over and they were still shooting. And we live in a world where Jesus has done something decisive and yet we're still getting shot at. Things are not totally resolved. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. And I believe that one of the great gifts that we have is to live our lives in that tension. And I believe Lent is a wonderful place to embrace that tension. God has done something for me and yet I still feel what's coming through that first door. And so we choose to trust. We remember that we were made for Easter. We remember that in the shadowy places, places where death surrounds us, we're resurrection people. And that takes some practice. So let's practice for the next 40 days. If you're able, let's stand together. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ-likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.